As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray uh, with me. Father, pray for me, for us, that you'll help us now as we come to this uh, particular passage of scripture. I pray that uh, you cause it to be for us uh, understandable and, uh, and uh, really transforming. That requires not simply for me to say some words, but Holy Spirit, for you to be active in our lives at this moment in time and even as we leave here. So please, I pray, uh, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the chapter 5, I want to read verses 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, please. This is the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we've been in the midst of this passage for a week or so and probably, I think, spend one more week uh, because I, I'll talk about verse 21 today. But, but I have to take that up all by itself. Um, so we'll do that, I think. Next week, But if God will help me this week, I want to take up really beginning in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We've been learning from Paul. Uh, about what it means to be a believer in a follower of Christ. Um, we're learning from him in the midst of this relationship that he has uh, with the church in Corinth. And so from his life and these experiences, he's writing to them and we're sort of sitting back and listening and watching and, and learning what it, what it means not only to be an apostle, that is his life, but what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is, which is our, our, our lives. And what we're learning, I think, from these uh, two points uh, these, this passage is uh, two points, uh, really. One, uh, uh, two points about reconciliation with God. Uh, the first point is that, that this reconciliation has occurred, occurs through the initiation of God. Not us, but the initiation of God. It's his work to bring this reconciliation. He does it through Jesus. And, and secondly, of those who've received this Reconciliation, those who are, are reconciled with God, then we're entrusted with this message. We're ambassadors of and for 
Christ. This was applied most directly to Paul and the other apostles, but then also, I think, uh, to us. I, I think that's pretty clear. I take the first point that this reconciliation is initiated by God from, from verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Um, and then verse 19, the beginning of it, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses uh, against them. I take the second point that we've been entrusted with this message that we're ambassadors uh, for Christ uh, from uh, the end of verse 18. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then at the end of verse 19, the message of reconciliation he entrusted to us. And therefore, in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So reconciliation with God is the result of God's work. And having received that work, now our identity is to be ambassadors for him to take this message uh, to others. I, I hope you see that. I hope that's clear. Now, throughout the scripture, God uses a number of terms for us to understand uh, our salvation. Um, we know these words. One is the big word, of course, propitiation, uh, which is a word that comes from the temple, the sphere of the temple. And it's a word related to sacrifice. And it's a word related to that means that God's wrath has been satisfied or exhausted. And so we talk about propitiation. We're talking about the wrath of God that by way of sacrifice, most particularly the sacrifice of Jesus, that his wrath, that is his anger, his righteous response towards our sin, not a knee-jerk reaction, not an emotional response, not just something that flares up like our anger can do, but real righteous anger, a real righteous response, a godly response, a just response, a moral response. Uh, to our law breaking, to our sin. His wrath is satisfied by another taking our place, propitiation. Uh, another word that um, is used by him uh, is uh, the word redemption. Uh, that is, this is from the marketplace. Something is redeemed, it's purchased, it's bought back. And Paul would know this most particularly from the slave market in his days where a price could be paid so that a slave could be set free. And so this sense of redemption is that Jesus has paid the price for us to be set free from sin and death. Redemption. Another word that we know is the word justification. The word justification comes from the sphere of the courtroom. Of, uh, uh, it's a, a legal term. That means that we've been justified, we've been pardoned, we've been forgiven our sins. And even more than that, we've been declared by God to be righteous. And all of that, again, the work of Christ, because it's, it's, it's his death that brings this forgiveness and thus frees God, if you will, to pardon us and still be just. And uh, it's his righteousness that we receive. I, I, I didn't know we were going to sing this song this morning by... My dear dead friend, Horatius Bonar. But, but it, it's just, just, yeah, it's amazing. 
life upon a life I've not lived, upon a death I didn't die, another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity, not on the tears which I've shed, not on the sorrows I've known, another's tears, another's griefs. Uh, on these I rest, on these uh, alone. I mean, all this from Jesus. It's, it's his life and death and so forth. So that gives God the foundation to declare me, a sinner like me, just. So justification. The other word, the word that we find today is the word reconciliation. And the word reconciliation suggests that there's been a hostility, there's been an alienation, there's been a separation between us and God. And so it's the work of Jesus, not excluding, of course, propitiation, not including, excluding uh, redemption, not excluding justification. It's the work of Jesus that brings this reconciliation to take these two parties, us and God, been alienated from one another and joined back together. Uh, John Stott puts it like this. He says, uh, he says, reconciliation is probably the most popular of these four because it's the most personal. Uh, the others are personal, it seems to me, too. But he says, we have behind us the temple precincts, sinks, the slave market and the law courts. And now we are in our own home with our family and friends. That is, we've been reconciled to God. He, our Father, we, His children, like reconciliated, once hostile, once alienated, and now we've been brought together. It's this sense of we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5 1. So uh, we know reconciliation, and we know what, it's, what it means uh, because we know its opposite. Alienation. We, we know that as human beings. We, we're well acquainted with alienation, uh, socially, politically, personally, uh, socially in terms of relationships within the world in which we live. I mean, we know it, workers and management, we know this alienation that can be true between uh, the true. We, we know it uh, in, in the sense of, 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 uh, of institutions. We see that uh, certainly uh, in our own city these days with students and the university. We know alienation among between races, within races, if you're one race to another, nationalities, uh, religions, right? alienated one from another. Uh, we know it. Uh, politically, we know it within the context of political parties, sometimes the political leaders feel alienated from their members, sometimes the members from the leaders of their political parties. We know that one nation against another nation, one ideology against another ideology. Again, uh, dare I say, the world in which we live, uh, the alienation, the hostility that we see in the context of terrorists against nations against people we we see that we know that hostility there is no peace how do we bring reconciliation in the midst of that we know much throughout our history and the history of humanity of alienation not so much of reconciliation we know much of separatism not so much of peace i mean that's just simply true we know it Personally, in, in, in our own lives, you know, in the context of our own families, uh, we know some hostility that exists in, between spouses, between parents and kids, among siblings in a family. We know that 
kind of alienation. We just know it. And sometimes we know reconciliation. Sometimes not. We see it in the in, 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 in our own relationships with other people, once friends, not friends, how do we reconcile? We know it, certainly, within ourselves even, the alienation we have, uh, the, the dissonance, the hostility, sometimes in our own lives, and we, we know it is fear, we know it is a certain neuroses, we know it is even depression and discouragement, we know even this feelings personally we know the effects of it of estrangement of isolation of anger of disappointment of separation of war we know uh, of alienation and so what's talked about now is reconciliation and it's the key reconciliation could i be so bold to say that all the other alienations and all the other separations and all the other hostilities that we feel in every sphere of the life that we experience and we know has its foundation here If we don't learn anything else about the history of humanity, can't we know that those hostilities have not yet been healed? Reconciliation has not been brought in all those areas of social and political and personal, all of that. And, And can't we then think that the foundation, the problem is this primary Alienation, this primary problem that has to be dealt with first before all the other problems can really be dealt with. And it's that, it's that alienation that human beings have with God and God with them. Because you see, this alienation between us and God is two-way. On the one hand, we're alienated from him. There's hostilities from our perspective, things that have to be dealt with in us before we can be reconciled with God. Uh, we, we know, we see these in the, in the sense of unbelief, Right? In the sense that we don't believe in this Jesus as human, as human beings, naturally speaking, that we criticize God very naturally to us. We question his judgment. We question his goodness. We question his, his power. We, we see all of that in the context of our own lives. We question his motives and his ways and we defame his, his character. We disbelieve his gospel. We reject his son. Uh, we mock him. Uh, you know, that, that, that damning expression in the Old Testament book of Judges, that every person did what was right in his or her own eyes. We, we, we compete against God. We put ourselves up against him. We make ourselves to be like him. And then we push him out and we put ourselves up, up front. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, uh, he, he says in chapter 8, our minds are naturally hostile to God. And, and so we see that kind of hostility. Something has to, has to change that, our view of God, before we can be reconciled to him. Now we realize... If we're seeing things with our real eyes, that's what real eyes means. Uh, uh, then if we see it, right, if we see it rightly, what we, uh, what we, what we realize is that we're not justified at all in being hostile towards God. He doesn't deserve it at all. I mean, you might have reason to be hostile towards me. If I've offended you in a particular way, and I'm sure I have. But, but you may have good reason for that. But, but, but we have no good reason for our hostility towards, towards God. It isn't justified uh, at all, you see. Uh, but it's still there. We know that. And we know that it's a result of our sinful condition. It's our sin. Sin that we're 
born into, we inherit from our first parents. It's that sinful condition that causes us, from our perspective, to be alienated from, to hostile towards God. But we, we mustn't forget that the primary alienation comes from God towards us. And that because of our, our sin, our, our rebellion. Uh, we mentioned it with the word propitiation. But what keeps God from being reconciled to us is his wrath. And again, this isn't just some sort of, some sort of emotional response, some sort of knee-jerk reaction uh, to our sin that God's just sort of ticked off at us because we don't pay him the right homage or any of that. It, it's, a, it's, it's a reasoned, righteous response to our sin. It's, it's the right response and, and in one sense, it's the, it's, it's the only response. It's, it's that response that's moral. That if God doesn't respond this way to our sin, the breaking of the holiest of laws, his, then he isn't moral. He isn't just. It isn't, it isn't right. He can't, he can't continue on like that and still be moral and just and right. You see, that's just simply true. If God didn't judge, then the death of all human beings would enable us to escape justice, real justice. Uh, so, so he must. And that's his wrath, his, his anger towards sin. And, and that's what separates us really, ultimately, from, from God. It's two-way. Yes, our lack of trust in him and love for him and all of that. But but primarily it comes from, from God uh, to us. And, and what this passage just, I say remarkably, there isn't a word that I could use about a passage of scripture that doesn't sound condescending. I could say it's great and it's awesome and it's powerful, and it's, but it's the word of God. So of course it's, it's all of that. But, but this, these, this is one of the passages that, that I read anyway, and I trust you read too, and just sucks the air out of me. I just, I don't even... I hate to say I don't know what to say about it because I'm going to talk a long time about it. But, 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 but you get it. I mean, it's just, what do you say other than what it says? Um, and, and what we realize then is, again, what's amazing here is that God takes it upon himself to deal with his own wrath on our behalf so that he can be reconciled to us. I mean, uh, this expression, verse 18, the first, all this is from God. I mean, again, I'm not into tattoos, but if you want to get one, put that on there, right? All this is from God. This whole reconciliation thing, our whole salvation thing, all of it's from God. There's, there's, there's eight verbs that follow after this, and uh, God is the subject of all of them, is, is reconciling. Uh, he's, he's giving us this message. He's entrusting us this message. He's uh, this um, not counting our trespasses against us. This this uh, causing uh, for our sake, making Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Uh, all those are God is the subject of all of those. He's the one who's acting, if you will, in every one of those cases. He's bringing this reconciliation. And again, he's the offended one. You see, if, if I punched you in the nose, 
I, I, well, I hope it would offend you. I mean, I, I mean, I hope I, I can at least uh, have that powerful a punch. If it doesn't offend you, it wasn't much of a punch. But let's say I'm able to punch you in the nose and it, and it offends you. And someone comes to you and says, now you need to seek reconciliation with Bill. You'd say, why? He started it. I mean, it's his deal. He, he, he started this mess. I, as the offender, should be the one to initiate reconciliation. I should come and say, I'm sorry. I'm the one who should come and pay the doctor's bills and all of that. But, but notice what happens here. And this is, this is the unique uh, love of God. That he, the offended one, comes and he's the one who brings this initiation. Now, he brings this reconciliation. Now, how does he do that? Well, Psalm 103 says, if God counts our iniquities against us, who can stand? The answer to that question, of course, is, well, no one. And so what does he do? Well, he chooses not to count our iniquities against us. But how does he do that? How does, you know this, I mean, but this, this is it, folks. This is joyous to us. This is our life. Um, this is the best thoughts we can have. Uh, he, 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 he chooses to not count our iniquity against us, not because he chooses to be immoral, not because he chooses to be unjust, not because he chooses to be apathetic towards sin. I mean, how horrible would it be to simply say, oh, yes, there are terrorists and they kill people at uh, willy nilly. But that's all right. We can't say that's all right. We have to deal with that. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't count his our sins against us. He counts our sins against Jesus. Now, this is the important word for you, and it's the word impute. Right? It's the theological word impute, which means to count to another, to, to lay on another, to, to put upon another. That which wasn't originally theirs, but, but now is. It's not inherently true of them, but now it really is true of them. And so, verse 21, he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That isn't to say that Jesus then went out and sinned. It doesn't mean that he was given a nature then that was sinful, but that the result of our sin, the guilt of it, the real guilt of it, was imputed, was laid upon, was counted to him. And so when Jesus was crossword on the cross, what the father saw was a guilty man standing for all guilty who were in him. It wasn't that Jesus had guilt. It was our guilt that was upon him. Remember the great struggle of our dear friend Martin Luther. Once reading Psalm 22, the expression of David then taken up by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther was just just, uh, uh, vexed over that expression. Why would the father forsake? His beloved and perfect son. Why would he do that? That's when it dawned 
on Luther. You know, the dawn sort of happens over time. You're sitting by the window and it's dark and you're sort of reading the newspaper. And then it, you look out and it's dawned. <laughs> the light has come. And, and so it dawned on Luther as, as this gospel has dawned on many of us over time. It dawned on him that he wasn't forsaken because of Jesus' own guilt, but because of Luther's guilt. And it had been imputed to him. And so he said, it wasn't for his sins, but for mine. And then, you know, the great expression of the prophet, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one according to his own way, but he, that is God, laid on him, imputed to him, we could say, laid on him, counted to him the sins, the iniquities of us all. I mean, that, that's what happened on the cross, if you were wondering. That's what happened on the cross. The sins of sinners, the guilt of the sins of sinners was placed upon Jesus. So he says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so two things happen. Technically, if you're reading a theological book, it's titled Double Imputation. That, that our sin, the guilt of it, was imputed to Jesus. And here's the amazing part of it. His righteousness is laid upon us. It's counted to us. That's why in the history of theology, this is called the great exchange or the glorious exchange. I give him my sin. He gives us his righteousness. It's rather like if you had a great debt and you couldn't pay it and someone came and paid it. That would be great. And you looked at your bank account and it zeroed out. But then you say, but but I don't have anything to live on. I don't have anything to go to the store and buy anything with. Uh, It's great that I have no debt, but I still have no money. And then that same person who came and paid off the great debt uh, puts more money into that account than you can ever imagine. And that's what's happened, you see. He's taken our debt, the debt of our sin, and then he's given us his righteousness upon which, from which, out of which to live and to be in the presence of God. It isn't just that we're forgiven, and we are, but now we stand before the Father in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay. So that's, that's how God did it. That's how all that uh, took place. And if I could just, again, quote uh, Martin Luther. He says, when we pray, this was his advice to a young man to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. Now remember, all of this is from God. He's dealing with what he has a right to have, which is wrath against us. We don't have any reasons at all to be against him. But he has every reason to be at odds with us. So he takes it upon himself to deal with to deal with that. Well, I'm in a quoting mood. This is from a theologian, a late 18th, early 19th century Scottish theologian named James Denny. He puts it like this. He says, what is it that makes a, the gospel necessary? That is the good news of Jesus. What is it 
that the wisdom and love of God undertake to deal with and do deal with in that marvelous way which constitutes the gospel. Is it man's distrust of God? Is it man's dislike, fear, antipathy, spiritual uh, alienation? So, so he's saying, what is it that, 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 that the gospel is about? What, what does God take up? That the gospel reports to us as good news. Is it, is it, is it our distrust, our dislike of God, our fear of Him, our antipathy, our spiritual alienation? Then he puts it like this. He says, not if we accept the apostles' teaching. The serious thing which makes the gospel necessary and the putting away of which constitutes the gospel is God's condemnation of the world and its sin. It's God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The putting away of this is reconciliation. The preaching of this reconciliation is the preaching of the gospel. Because you realize, we realize that we need to be saved, not from ourselves, some of that. We need to be saved from hell, that's true. But, but what necessitates that is we need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. And he saves us. By suffering what we deserve. That's why when the apostles write of the love of God, they always write of the cross. Because that's the astounding part of it. That God demonstrates one older version has this little parenthetical expression. God demonstrates his own kind of love. Nobody, nobody has this kind of love. God demonstrates, he shows, he manifests his own kind of love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So well, somebody might possibly dare for a good man, for a righteous man, somebody might even, even consider dying. But, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were his enemies, while we were sinners, he, he died for us. For this is love, right? You know this from 1 John chapter 4. For this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation or as an atoning sacrifice, if you have an NIV, as a propitiation for our sin. That's the love of God, you see. And, and that's what's so astounding about it, that God makes reconciliation. God deals with the real issue. God deals with what really separates us from him. He deals uh, with that. Now, now, now that we know that, here's our calling. We're to be ambassadors uh, for Christ. And, and I put it this way, that, that this is first and foremost or primarily for Paul and the apostles. That's, that's, I think, how he's understanding it first and foremost as he's writing this. That he's saying we've been, meaning he and the other apostles, us, we've been amba- we're ambassadors for Christ. We've been entrusted with this message that um, this ministry, this service, this ministry of reconciliation. So, and, and we get that. We know that. We know that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We know that the apostles, first and foremost, were given this message, were entrusted with this message, and now the church is entrusted with this message. But we know that it, it was first taken by Paul to the nations. It was 
first given to them, first taken by them, written down by them in an authoritative, infallible way so that we would have it. In other words, to listen to Paul is to listen to Jesus. That all of Paul's letters were written just like all the words of Jesus in red, right? It's, it's the word of God. One isn't more significant even than the other because it's all coming from, from God. And so Paul, this entrusted with the message, is an ambassador for Christ. That means he speaks on behalf of Christ. We know what an ambassador does. An ambassador represents another nation. Ambassador represents another king. The, the, the ambassador um, represents another uh, president, if you will. The ambassador of France from the U.S. right now speaks to the French people. Uh, should be at least. Uh, she should be on behalf of the president of the United States. It's as if he is there. It's as if uh, our nation is there as she speaks. She's speaking not on behalf of herself. If she speaks on behalf of herself... She'll get it. She should get in trouble. If she says something contrary to what the president wants her to say, she should get in trouble for that. And so we're ambassadors for Jesus. We, Paul, was to take this message that he was entrusted with and speak on behalf of Jesus and to say only those things which Jesus would want him to say. There's a sense in which an ambassador glorifies the king. To glorify means to reflect. Just as the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus, reflects him, tells us everything Jesus wants us to know. An ambassador for Christ tells, tells everything that Jesus wants to be told. And the message of this reconciliation is that we tell people to be reconciled to God. That's what we tell them. That God through Jesus, has achieved reconciliation. And the message now to people is to receive that, to believe that, to trust that, to embrace that. If I may, again, quote my friend James Denny. It's quite dead, by the way, but still lives. When St. Paul says that God has given him the ministry of reconciliation, he means that he's a preacher of this peace, that is peace with God. He ministers reconciliation to the world. It is not the main part of his vocation to tell men to make their peace with God. Listen to that. It isn't. The main part of his calling or ours to tell men to make their peace with God, but rather to tell them that God has made peace with the world. At bottom, the gospel is not good advice, but good news. All the good advice it gives is summed up in this, receive the good news. But if the good news be taken away, if we cannot say God has made peace, God has dealt seriously with his condemnation of sin so that no longer it no longer stands in the way of your return to him. If we cannot say here is the reconciliation, receive it. Then for man's actual state, 
We have no gospel at all. Because we can't do what God did through Jesus. We can't make that reconciliation. We can't make that peace. Only he can And the good news, the announcement, the proclamation, the declaration, the gospel is that God has done it through Jesus. Now receive it. Then he goes on. In the 19th verse, St. Paul explains more fully the way in which he's looking at the subject. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning unto them their trespasses, and having committed unto us the word of reconciliation. This sentence does not mean that God was trying to convert men or to prevail with them to lay aside their enmity, but that he was disposing of everything that on his part made peace possible. When Christ's work was done, the reconciliation of the world was accomplished. When men were called to receive it, they were called to a relationship to God, not in which, not in which they would no longer be against him, though that's included, but in which they would no longer, they would no, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Not in which they would uh, no more be against him, though that is included, but in which they would no more have against, it's a hard sentence, he was Scottish. I mean, I should have paraphrased it, but I wanted to be faithful to him. Let me get this right. But in which they would no more have him against them, that's it but in which they would no more have him against them. There would be no condemnation thenceforth to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you're probably going, okay. I know that. Well, I know you. I hope you know that. But don't take knowing that for granted. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Be mesmerized by it. And if you're not, pinch yourself. If you're not, meditate upon it. If you're not, can I say it this way? You should be. You're not getting it if you're not. When I don't get this, I'm not. To to realize that, that, that this is profound. Nobody's like this other than, other than God. And the point of the message with which we've been entrusted isn't to beg people to change their hearts about God and all of that. It's to tell them what God has done. It's that God has done this. That the reconciliation has been made. You should be worried. We should be worried. Oh no, how could, this, how could I ever be reconciled to God knowing my sinful heart? The, the great news is, well, here's how. God has done it. He, he's taken the, the, the guilt, the, the, your guilt and, and, and the punishment that you deserve and laid it on Jesus. And, and he's given righteousness in its stead. And, and so just receive it. Receive it. Believe this. And there's something in the message of that upon those whom God has chosen to receive it, that changes their hearts and enables them to say yes. Now, we're ambassadors. Rick was sharing with the men yesterday at the men's breakfast from Acts chapter 1, where Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses. And very helpfully, Rick pointed out that that wasn't a command to be his witnesses. It was a statement of fact. Because of what they had seen and because of what they knew, because of what God had done in their lives, 
they would be, by their very lives, poster children for the gospel. They would witness to it. Their lives would testify of the truth of the gospel. That wasn't a choice. It wasn't a command. It was just a fact. It's an identity thing. And, 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 and you can be a good witness and you can be a bad witness, but you're going to be a witness uh, of Jesus uh, if you are a believer in him. And, and so we're ambassadors. That's what we do. We speak on his behalf. Our lives are posters <laughs> for poster children for the gospel for reconciliation. That God can take a sinner like me and do that which is necessary on his part that I would be at peace and he at peace with me. That's the message. That's who we now are. And, and we to realize that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. That doesn't mean that he's reconcil- he'll reconcile every person to himself, that everyone will be uh, saved. He, you know, Paul's clear about that, 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 that. That is enacted or affected only through faith, repentance. But his point is, Paul's point is, that this isn't just for me, Paul. This isn't just for us apostles. This isn't just for us in Jerusalem. This isn't just for we Jews. This isn't just for men. This is just for the educated. This isn't just for our particular place and our particular point in time. But this is for the whole world. So get out there. and <laughs> Get out there and be ambassadors and make sure this message is going everywhere because it's something that he's done in the context of the whole world, both for them there and for others elsewhere for them at that point in time and for others like us at a later point in time and even for those at a former point in time. So it's indeed for the whole world. So the conclusion is this. We know why reconciliation with God is necessary because there's alienation because of our sin and his wrath upon us. We know how reconciliation comes how it comes, right? It comes from God through Christ, <clears throat> reconciling the world to himself by way of imputation upon Jesus, our guilt, his righteousness to us. And it comes to the world by way of the church, us, as ambassadors for Jesus, to whom he's entrusted the message, taking this message, and this message is, hey, you, be reconciled to God. So may I. It isn't just having the message. It isn't just speaking the message. It's imploring. It's pleading. It's begging people to receive, to be Reconciled to God. So I have to say this. I want to say this. Do you know it? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you received this reconciliation? Not on the basis of anything that you have done. Not on the basis of your church attendance. Not on the basis of your giving. Not on the basis of the fact that your grandmother was a Christian. Right? Not on the basis that you grew up in a Christian home. 
Not on the basis that your husband or your wife is a Christian. Not on the basis that your parents are Christians. Not on the basis that you've been coming to this church since you were born. Not on the basis of the fact that that you're a member of this church. Not on the basis of the fact that you try to do the best you can to obey God. Uh, Not on the basis of, of you pray. Not on the basis of any of that. But on the basis of the fact That God made Jesus to be sin on your behalf so that in him you may be the righteousness of God. Don't, please, let another moment go past until you know the answer to that question. When I die, Will God allow me into heaven and why? Do you really know that? You know that it's maybe the last time you have opportunity to hear that. To really hear it. We don't know when a hardening of heart happens in a person's life. I don't I think it has anything to do or much to do with chronology of age. But it's real. So we don't want time to slip because we don't want our hearts to become so hardened that the gospel just simply bounce off every time we hear it. Please don't. Allow circumstances that you don't understand to get in the way of hearing the love of God through the work of Christ to satisfy his wrath to make reconciliation. Don't allow other people like me or others who claim Christ but have disappointed both him and you Don't allow that to cause you to miss the message of reconciliation. But rather, that you would receive it, bringing nothing but your sin and your undeservedness and your amazement at the mystery that someone like you could be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that you would grant either no assurance Or assurance. No assurance if we really don't believe. Please strip us, spare. But yet assurance if we really do. Cause us to cast our eternal destiny upon you and you alone. 
Father, we, we, we see the alienation in our, in our world. We see it in the, not just the country of France today, but we could just put pins all throughout the world where there is political and social unrest and alienation and hostility. We could go to our own campus and see unrest and feelings of alienation. And so I pray, God, that we wouldn't just simply say, well, I guess it's just there, and it is. But rather we would see past that and realize the primary alienation is between you and us. And so I pray that you would raise up people among us and uh, throughout the world to announce this, that we too in our own families, in our own church, in our own communities could be good ambassadors, faithful ambassadors for Christ with this message. Please, I pray that you would cause us to be faithful individually and corporately. Having entrusted this message to us, give us wisdom on how to best and most faithfully represent Christ in every sphere of, of our own lives. Help us. And I pray, God, for those who um, suffer on this day, whether it be grief Sadness or disappointment or pain from disease or just the general flow of life. You would grant real peace within knowing that we have peace with you. I pray for Alice and Nye, Katie Huff, their family, on the uh, unexpected death of Alison's niece, Katie's cousin and I pray for them, God, that you would supply to them, their family, uh, a certain assurance of their niece's salvation and they may uh, enter into her joy and grieve not as those who have no hope, but as those who have a deep and abiding hope. I pray for Hannah Randolph and her family on the death of her grandmother. Thank you for her grandmother's faith and I pray the same for them, for the family of Jerry Benevente, a friend of many of ours, that you would be with uh, Jerry's family upon his death as well. Of course, we pray for the Pug Camps and others who we have called to go and to minister on behalf of Christ, to be ambassadors in that special way of taking the gospel somewhere else. And so we pray for them and for others who minister, God, that you would be with them and their ministry would be a faithful one and the message would be clear. And this I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.